You're listening to Northern Stages Podcast. When we say podcast, we mean a conversation. A conversation we held on Monday the 14th of September. This week we talked to Anne Robinson, a freelance stage designer and sonographer. Anne and I talk about the myriad of skills needed to take an idea from a director's head and fully realise it with time constraints, multiple relationships to manage, and at all times making sure that you produce something remarkable for audiences to enjoy. It's a totally fascinating hour. Give it a listen. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Northern Stages Podcast. Um, this week, I am joined by the uh, strong and silent type, Johnny Rothwell, and also the brilliant Anna Robinson. Hello, Anna Robinson. How are you? I'm all right, thank you, Mark Calvert. How are you? Oh, full name. I have a full yeah. name. It's quite interesting. Um, what, using your full name? Yeah, it's, it's sort of a habit I've developed that some other people use it back at me. Um, it's quite strange to hear your full name. Well, we'll jump right in. So, uh, who are you, for those of you who don't know, and what do you do? Uh, I'm Anna Robinson. I'm a stage designer. Sometimes I call myself a scenographer, uh, which is just a fancy word for stage designer. Um, sometimes I facilitate workshops, and sometimes I waitress, and sometimes I usher. Yeah, it's me. It's a portfolio career. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Which is important. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, how you got to be sat uh, in your living room, I imagine, uh, and talking to Johnny and I? What's your background? Like, yeah, what made you be- want to become a set designer or a scenographer? Um, I guess a short story is that I was part of Young Company when I was 17. And that was kind of the time that I was looking to do, to, um, to, figure out what I wanted to do at university and if I wanted to go to university. Um, And uh, I pulled the wonderfully short straw of having a character that only communicated through the the medium of playing the violin. Um, And so so part of the payoff was that I got to um, assist direct, but that didn't work out. And the director came up to me and said, quote unquote, Anna, you like art? design this show um so I kind of designed the show and that was the first show I'd ever designed and um later on I decided to do stage design at uni basically there's a longer story to it but that's like that's the um the pinpoint in my history so that's the pivotal moment yeah um but there's got to be a little bit more to it than uh, Anna, you like art, design the show, that um, that led you to want to become a set designer. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think I think um, I've always absolutely loved theatre. Um, my first like real memories of theatre is theatre and education. So um, you know there was a, a touring company that came to my first school when I was about five, and they did Snow Queen. And they came out at, at the end of the applause and there was only two of them. And I was just completely wowed that there was only two of them in the cast. I was expecting a cast of seven or something. Um, I, I was gullible, but also they were very talented. Um, and uh, I think from then on, I kind of understood the magic of theatre and, and how it could transport you to different places and how these people were no longer themselves in front of you they were different characters and they could play different characters and that kind of thing and then um I went to the theatre quite a lot as a as a kid 
And I think the the moment where I realised that stage design was a thing was I saw Peter Brooks's 11 and 12, which is um, uh, these um, traditional stories from, I think, Africa, I'm not quite sure, but they're about different religions clashing. And um, it was all about storytelling. It wasn't, um, I guess it was theatrical, but it wasn't theatrical in the way that you would expect to sit on red velvet seats and have the curtain drawn in front of you. It was it was very much about getting these stories told in the most delicate way and the, the way that um, treated the stories with real respect and the people involved in the stories as well and the cultures involved in the stories. And there was one real moment. So the set essentially was this um, big round orange cloth that represented the desert. And they had a rail of clothes and then that was it. And they had like a, a pole in the middle, which was actually a stick. Um, and the the one moment in that show was where um, one of the characters had to travel over the sea. And so he sat in the middle of the orange dot and then two other people gathered at either end and they rocked really slowly just to simulate the sea. And um, I think it was just beautiful. That was like the moment where I could see um, the conversation between the designer and the director and how important that was and how important the design was in the telling of those those stories. I think that was the moment where I really, like, really realised that design was a thing and, and important in theatre. So if we jump, I don't know, forward, maybe, I don't know how long, eight or nine years from the moment you saw that, maybe more to now, you know, finishing uh, training. Um, can you talk about the impact training had on you, as in, like, what it gave you technique-wise, and also, um, like, what has that meant to your process? And could you talk us through your process? That's three questions in one. I get that. <laughs> um, yeah. I think, well, I went to drama school, so I went to Central School of Speech and Drama in London. And... Um, I wouldn't say that I had the the um, most incredible time, but it was it was fruitful. And um, I think drama school, you know, it's tough. It's <laughs> you're it's filled with these incredibly talented people, and that is one of the things about being at drama school that it, no matter what course you're on, um, if you make the effort, you are rubbing shoulders with you know your friends and colleagues who are in, immensely talented and passionate about what they're doing. So I think I think all in all, it, I came out with a greater respect of all the other professions within theatre and how the conversations between each um, uh, each job, each little cog in, in that process is so important. Um, and I think uh, it, it's really interesting looking back to how I designed the Young Company show. So my process hasn't really changed that much. Um, you know, I interrogate the script or um, the concept of the show because often I'll start with not a script, I'll start with the concept of a show um, and it will be devised along the way. Um, I'll interrogate that. Often I'll be fortunate enough to be in the rehearsal room with the company who are producing it and um, I'll sit and listen. A lot of what I do is sitting and listening, doing a bit of doodling of their movements and a lot of taking notes, you know. So-and-so says that this scene is sad, but they think that green is the right colour for it. Um, 
it's like those little moments are really important for um, informing the design. Um, and I think I think at drama school it taught me how to refine those interrogations of concept and script. Um, uh, yeah. You see, you see, you start off with concept, but where does the concept come from? Does that come from as you just described, or do you go in with something that goes, oh, like, where, where does where does that begin to sort of I don't know evolve in your brain? Well, I think I think well, I've never been brought onto a project from the very very you know inception of the concept. So I'll be brought in and and we'll have conversations with the director and they'll tell me this is a show about X Y Z. So that is the main concept. And from that, I'll pick out themes. So I'll talk to them about, well, you know, your concept might be climate change, for instance. But is it about the people who are enduring climate change or is it about the people who are um, making climate change happen? Is it about the past or is it about the future? Um, And what is the message that you want to convey? But another big thing for me is is the audience. I think designers are really responsible for setting up the the right ambience for the audience to come into. Um, It's sort of like the first bite of a really posh meal at a restaurant, I think. You've kind of, you've really got to grab the audience's attention with the visual imagery that you put in front of them. Whether that is a black box, because a black box... It can be as simple as that, but it, there's got to be a reason why you are showing the audience a black box to begin with. Or if it's this really, you know, lavish, um, you know, red and purple set, there's there's got to be a reason behind it. And you've got to understand to some extent what the audience are going to pick up from it from the beginning. Yeah. I've rambled. <laughs> no, you haven't rambled at all. I think it's quite interesting about that, about where you place your audience and also that you're both being audience and part of a team that's trying to make a show for an audience. And obviously, normally, potentially, the set is the first thing that people see and it probably buys you five or six minutes as a director, their response to it. And so I think, you know, uh, the design process is, is something I'm fascinated by and I'm fascinated by how designers do it because I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could sort of go, oh, um, draw something for me. And there you go, da-da. You know, I think it's incredibly... Because I think you have to work with so many different people. Like, you mentioned it a little bit earlier on. Um, so, did our designers... How collaborative did our, do designers have to be to, like, get to the point where, you know, they start in their brain and then it's on set. Like, what, talk, talk as well, that, that, to that collaboration of possibility yeah. and names and people and departments and... I think it's incredibly collaborative. I think, I mean, depending on the scale of the show and the budget, I think sometimes it can be an incredibly lonely job and, and um, you know, you'll be in your room designing and drawing and making model boxes on your own. But... Um, but more often than not, you've got to talk to, um, you know, people who are building your sets or people who are sourcing the props who, you know, so so scenic artists or scenic constructors or stage managers do an awful lot of jobs about um, making the the final image, re- like, come to life. 
Um, production managers are incredibly uh, important. They're the ones who kind of keep you in check and tell you that you're in budget and tell you that you're not going to kill your actors by putting that slope there. You know, I think it's um, it's incredibly collaborative. One of the, the job roles that I find the most helpful for me is lighting designers because, um, you know, colour theory completely changes when you put things underneath lights. And... Um, they're in they're like my mind is blown at, at their intelligence and skill and and um you know passion about their careers but what their lighting completely changes what you put on stage and so it's incredibly important to talk to them about um what this color might look like underneath the pink lighting that they are you know thinking of putting on or um I don't know it, it, I often feel like life, my sets look terrible and then they're lit and then they look fine. And I often say to lighting designers, you've saved my bacon. You've absolutely saved my bacon. But I think it's, I think it's be, that that's maybe not giving myself enough credit because actually, or, or the relationship giving enough credit because actually that's kind of where the conversations start. The understanding from both sides and then coming together and making this beautiful, you know, piece of design. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I've never really thought about colour theory, although, I mean, I know sometimes designers talk to me about it, and I go, yeah, surely, and then I wander off somewhere else. Not because I'm not interested, because I think, you know, that is that relationship between set and lights is a fundamental to the realisation of a piece on stage that made people go, and, you know, buy your five minutes. Um, what do you have to keep in mind when you're working in different spaces uh, for different live events? Like, what is your brain doing as you walk into a physical space and think about either the set that's been built or before the set has been built? What does your mind do when you walk into a physical space and you know you've got to design for it? And what do you keep in mind when designing? Yeah. And what do you have to keep in mind? Well, I guess, yeah, that's interesting because it's not as easy as sort of just kind of drawing a, ne- a pretty picture and saying, make that. Um, definitely not. I think I you have to keep in mind health and safety. Health and safety is a big one. Um, and and can, if you're not careful, you don't keep an eye on it. You don't have to be really rigorous about it at all. But if you don't keep an eye on it, it can, you can create this, you know, wonderful set with loads and so loads of slopes and then realise that actually the, the cast aren't going to be able to run up those slopes, let alone walk up, um, or that the cast are all going to fall down and, and break every bone in their body. And um, there, there's just an element of um, keeping in mind functionality as well as making the aesthetics um, work with the concept and themes of the show. Things like, you know, you need to keep in mind where the fire exits are. It's like really boring things, but <laughs> but keep in mind where the fire it's exits essential. are. Yeah, yeah completely. Well, at, at uni, I'd created this um, magnificent set for uh, the Hackney Empire, and it, I had the audience come on stage. So I'm, I'm uh, I don't know how I feel about immersive, but I definitely lean towards sort of involving the audience a bit more than your average show would, um, or definitely thinking about the audience more than um, than other people might. 
and I, I designed this huge set and, and someone came over, my lecturer came over and she was like looking at it being like, this is all very well. But if you've got a fire, you've literally locked in your entire audience. They're all going to burn to a crisp. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> no, that's my lesson learned. <laughs> um, so yeah, all, in, all essential things. I think also just uh, understanding how flexible the, the, the space is, where the um, actors are going to come on and off of. If, they, if the director wants the actors to stay on stage all the time, are they going to have hangout points or are they going to have their own little stations? Um, yeah, I think functionality, functionality and um, beautiful functionality is the key to the game. Um, so what surprised me about um, the design process was like how many stages there are to it. And uh, as an actor, I only really got to see the last one where you, you know, on the first day of rehearsals, you walk up and there's a beautiful thing that's in front of you. You'll go, ooh, that's exciting. And uh, the designer and director talk you through it. But as a director, I know it goes through multiple stages. And uh, from those initial conversations with the designer to those ongoing conversations via Pinterest or things like that, uh, and into white card and then final model box presentation. Do you want to talk us through that about how you approach it? About was it a surprise for you? Like what? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's another thing about it. Depends on how big the production is, and and um, you know some shows they're very last minute. So some shows I've had two weeks to design a show, um, and the performance has been on literally at the end of those two weeks. Um, I've just worked on something that had like a whole year process, year long process. Oh, so tell me the difference between those two then. Um, I mean, the the two weeks one is you kind of you kind of go in and generally because of how short the span is, generally there's a strong opinion on what the concept and themes are going to be, and you know that there isn't really enough time for them to change their minds on that, and so you you can you have the confidence to design something that um, you come up with a preliminary design, no matter you know the the length of the process um generally the if you're working at a two week long process then the preliminary design is going to be um almost exactly what you see at the end of the process but with a few tweaks here and there whereas you'll find with a year-long process for example the preliminary design is just like completely out of the window that's that was um the colors and it was kind of the, the little sort of starter that you needed to get going, having the right conversations about where you wanted to end up. Um, for a year-long process, you... Yeah, I think Pinterest boards is a massive thing for me. You're constantly pinging back emails and having phone calls about whether um, uh, this is what you really wanted to convey or this is what you really wanted to convey. Um and then you do, you have the white card. Often you'll have technical drawings. If it's a, it's all about the functionality again, often you have technical drawings of the theatre and understanding that you can't put tables there because um, people will die or um, you, can't, <laughs> you can't put the audience here because the audience actually can't see the actor from that position. Um, so... There's, there's kind of like, there's probably three different conversations going on at the same time. There's one where you are trying to grasp an idea of design, 
but you know that that design is all going to be a bit wispy and worry and you're not going to have a permanent idea of what it is until much later on in the process. And then and how does that having, make you feel? Um, I think sometimes it makes me feel, it, it depends. If I've gone from a two-week-long process into a year-long process, I get really frustrated because I've got myself used to making snap decisions. Um, you know, sometimes it's quite high pressure and um, I don't see myself as high strung, but sometimes I am a completely different person in those scenarios. Um, I think, but but also it gives you the freedom. It gives you the freedom to experiment with different ideas and approach different ideas. And um, there is something, especially for someone who's like still kind of fairly fresh out of university, the, the opportunity to play with different ideas is, is one in a million. And um, really fruitful. You learn from every experience you do, and especially from the year-long processes where you get to talk about every decision you've made. And da, 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 da. I say that as though it's really bad, but <laughs> it's nice. <laughs> it's nice if you if you're in the right mood for it to be nice. No, because I think you know that thing about how you develop a relationship. From my point of view, with a designer, is like fundamentally one of well. 90% of the success of the show. Because if you can't find a way to communicate with each other collaboratively and hear each other, how do you go about managing different personalities, managing your own personality inside of that, um, to allow for a genuinely good creative conversation? Yeah. I think the key to remember is that you're 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 working together. It's a professional relationship, whether you like each other or not. Um, so I think uh, if you're not getting on with them, like from a personal perspective, just the ability to put that to the side and, and uh, continue working is fine. But that's like any old job. Um, I, I don't know. I think I think um, it's the same thing. I often say to people when people say to me, you know, you work in theatre, that must be so exciting. I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. sometimes, sometimes it is. <laughs> sometimes you really, really think that the the different shade of blue is life or death and you really feel that. Um, and then you come out at the end and you realise how stupid that is. Um, I think... Well, I, I, mean, yeah, I mean, I think that's quite interesting because, you know, because, you know, my wife saves lives. I, I don't know, run around her house room with, you know, people in their tracksuit bottoms. And I think sometimes that reality of life grabs hold of you. But at the same time, as you said, you know, when you're deciding with, between red or blue and it feels so enormous. Yeah. Um, I think I think also you've got to give it credit. Like sometimes it is an enormous decision, especially if you're, you know, if you're putting a deep colour blue for Snow Queen, for example, that would just be completely wrong because you want it to be a light, icy, cold blue, not a um, potentially sad and depressing blue. That's, that's the wrong message that you're sending the audience. And you're also setting the cast up to play against that ambience that you've just created, the wrong the wrong scenario. Um, I remember seeing um, a show um, by, what was it, Secret Theatre by Lyric, was it Lyric Hammersmith? Yeah, and they did the Secret Theatre group. Um, and they did... Uh, streetcar named desire and i absolutely loved it and the set was um pristine white and it had two very high walls um and this was before i was studying stage design 
Um, and I, I loved the show. I thought it was an incredible show. And I thought the actors did an incredible job. Um, but I was speaking to a friend of mine who's a writer and she said that the set was completely wrong for her because Streetcar Named Sire is all about the heat. It's about everything getting too hot and tempers flying and people not being honest with each other and, and that tension rising. But it, it all stems down to the heat and having a pristine white set didn't help with that idea, didn't help with that concept. And so she felt like the cast were playing against that idea and um, so I think in I mean I loved the show and I don't know how the set worked for me but it <laughs> didn't bother me in that scenario but but that is a good example to show you that actually um you've got to be really aware of the audience and how the audience read different things and 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 it does mean that the shade of blue can actually mean whether the audience read it in the way that you want to read it. And that is very important. Yeah, um, I find that really interesting about, about how people think they think it should be. So no matter how good what's on stage is, it removes them from it. How do you deal with that when you talk about your sense of audience as you're designing something? How would you deal with, you know, you know just that, you know, that somebody goes, well, it should be, you know, sweltering hot in there, surely. And uh, does that when you're creating something in your brain concept-wise, do does that bring you back to middle ground or do you always want to sort of push away from it? Or Yeah, I think it depends on, on the show and how quickly you want, whether you want the audience to be passive in it or whether you want the audience to um, really sit there and think about what they're watching. Um, I think if you want them to be passive, um, then then you need to give them as much information you need to um let them just sit and enjoy and not have to um think analytically about it um and then uh if you i think if you want them to sit and think about it then then you might be more inclined to make it more conceptual or um to put in tiny little references that they might not notice but that will trigger certain ways of thinking or certain thoughts um, I think a company that do it really well, a designer, Reese Jarman, I know you know Reese Jarman really well, but I think Reese Jarman's work with Gecko is incredible. I think that that is much more um, like conceptual. He, he creates a general scenario so the audience come in and they, you know, um, institute, they kind of know, they know from the, the title that they're an institute, but they don't really know what institute they're in. And they come in and they see these walls filled with filing cabinets. And they kind of know that this is a familiar scenario. But, but because the wall of filing cabinets could be anywhere, it could be an, your home office, it could be the doctor's office, it could be, you know, it could really be anywhere. And because of that, it means that the audience are able to relate in a very different way. And it also means that they're able to analyse it. So if they are in a particular mood where they are feeling sort of um, kind of like they're looking at themselves then they might read some of themselves in that performance. So if they're, if they're wanting to look at other places and, and they don't feel like they look, want to look at themselves then they might, you know, analyse outside situations, outside scenarios. So I think, I think it's really interesting. I remember having um, a conversation with the meet 
after watching the wedding and I was like it's about this isn't it and he sort of like stood in front of me with this big grin he was like no (laughs) 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 fine that's absolutely great for you yeah it is about that for you but it wasn't that's not where we started from but I think he he wasn't offended by that in fact he found delight in the idea that people were taking different things away from it and that wasn't just in his entire genius that was also to do with Rhys Jarman's design and the ability to open it up and allow the audience to you know analyze different situations yeah I mean yeah I think Rhys Jarman is an absolute brilliant mind and I've been very lucky to work with him over the last four years and um <clears throat> but on that you've mentioned Reese. uh can you tell me another two designers that have inspired you and why uh that yeah simple question no uh, and also why yeah why why Reese and gecko and then two other designers that have inspired you why Reese and gecko Reese. I think Gecko, for me as a company, I, I obsess over the way that they use breath in their performance and um, how they use breath to break up the performance and they use breath as like um, uh, as a movement in itself. And I think there's something about um, the human condition and, and looking at breath and sighing and what that means. Um, and Reese, I think, just his designs work so beautifully with with that um with gecko's thinking i mean he's not separate to gecko's thinking by any means he's it's all entangled um and i think that reese i remember talking to him about his way of his use of light it's like the use of breath and the use of light really go together um and he show he uses light to literally shine the light on something or to um show um like a mobile phone lighting up and then that being a distraction in the show um and uh yeah I think I, I just love Reese. I think he's <laughs> I think he's a genius um yeah me too yeah. and I think you know from what I've heard from that process it is a design-led process they must have I don't know six seven different variations of what finally becomes potentially maybe the set which then goes through another different journey. And uh, um, that fascinates me about the impact of design in a rehearsal room. Uh, I don't know how you feel about that, about a, a sort of a, a sort of a working or part working sort of uh, realisation of the sets or and the impact that has on the company, the other creatives around it to see how you know, we're all going to use something. How do you feel about a design-led process? I mean, for me personally, I haven't had many opportunities to do it, so it, it scares me. But I think that that's probably. Um, I think actually, design-led processes should be should happen more. I think that they. Um, I think the design is integral to the performance, and and often it's not used in that scenario in in that way. Um, and I think actually, you know, listening to Reese talk about how he would bring objects into the room. Um, and then the company would use them in different ways and they would explore this object and what this object would mean in the space and, and with them, then I think um, it just it sounds incredibly fruitful. And, and I think that that is why the Gecko shows feel 
like everything is entangled. It's not just the design and then the direction and the movement. They're all one. They're all, um, you can see where the design has really informed the movements and the movements have really informed the design as well. Um, so yeah, I think I think from a more um, flowy performance and, and something where you wouldn't stop, it's going back to that Peter Brooks thing, you can really see the conversation that happened, but you can't see where the direction stopped and the design started. And I think that's stunning. I think that's where it's, you know, you get a successful design. Sorry, I, I sort of stopped you with a while. You were going to maybe tell us about two other designers that have inspired you and why. Yeah, I need to think. There's so many designers. Um, I had one on the tip of my tongue. Andrew Stevenson. Oh, really? Yeah. I uh, got to know Ruth Johnson when I was really little. I was about 11. And you, when I was about 11. Um, And... (laughs) um, (laughs) Sorry. Um, And that was the time when you were directing the kids' shows and Susan Mulholland was writing them and often Ruth was performing in them. And, um, And so... I would make an excuse and go and see them. And um, I just felt like the the way that Andrew um, transformed the space. So it was in stage two whenever I went to see them. But you'd walk in and I'm really familiar with stage two. You know, I did lots of participation stuff at Northern Stage and so often found myself rehearsing in stage two or playing games or singing Baby Shark in stage two. Um, so I, I knew stage two like the back of my hand, but you'd walk into this space and it wasn't stage two anymore. It was this magical forest where if a baby fell, they wouldn't hurt their heads because the, the floor was cushioned. Um, and there were food fights and um, trees that had doorways in them. So, yeah, Andrew Stevenson, he's magical. He's magical. A bit like race in the way he collaborates and works yeah. with you. And also that they can take off quite a lot of your pressure and go and do something genius and go, da-da, and you go, great, solve that. Yeah. You. He, he, did, he designed um, the man who thought the moon would fall out of the sky as well, didn't he? He did. Yeah. See, that's another, because they're, they're two very different kind of designs. And I think he did a, a genius job on that as well. You know, um, that was very much about storytelling. And so he used different... Um, devices to storytell, setting up um, sheets and lights so that you can use um, shadow puppetry and um, giving you all sorts of props. Using a door as a coffin. Did you use a door as a coffin? It's a great show. Should come back. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you did that in three weeks. Um, From initial idea to it being developed and put on stage. Um, So again, you know, well, there you go. How how far away was the final project from the initial idea? Um, well, I think we got about, uh, I think we had about five weeks from when we started to do it to when we actually, well, anyway, this is about you, not me. <coughs> or oh, Andrew. Um, it's about design, we were asking. It is about design, design. and that's, that's the thing, you know, I've, as I've said, you know, I think that relationship that I've had with designers I've worked with have been <clears throat> fundamental to, to, like, how they make me feel about a show I'm working on that because I think when I speak to Reese or Andrew and they give me an idea that makes me excited 
I can also know that's going to make a company excited and it's also will generate imagination from a company. And, and I think that about how that designer works with a company as well, as well as director, I think is also fundamentally important to how they sort of realise together that show. Um, yeah, fascinating. Um, <clears throat> tell me um, the least enjoyable aspect of your job and also the most enjoyable aspect of your job. The least enjoyable... I think can be can be how the can be the time crunch. I think um, sometimes you feel like you've got to force creativity, and that's never a nice feeling. Um, I think that's probably my least enjoyable. Other than that, I would probably say the fact that at the moment I'm not earning enough, and so I have to have other jobs, and so I'm constantly in in. Yep. Um, I think it's the best and the the, the worst actually that. Um, being freelance means that you are in loads and loads of different places at once. So I had one day where I was, you know, uh, had a meeting um, with a potential collaborator for a show in the morning and that was in town. Then I had to come back uh, to do my waitressing job and then I had to leave the waitressing job and then get um, a train to Middlesbrough and facilitate a workshop. And that was like one day. And, and often my days consist of that. I'm dotting about the place um and I think I think that is that is probably the best and worst part that you get to meet so many different people um and it's not you know I've done lots of stuff that involves um participation and it's I love that that element of it it's not just working with the professionals it's also working with the participants and um the people who really help inform the show and the design um and then that's also, you know, having to organise yourself is um, a pain. <laughs> a pain in the butt. And how do you deal with that? How does your creative brain deal with that thing of like Middlesbrough, uh, I don't know, in the evening? And like, how do you find time then to or discipline yourself to go, okay, you need to go and give yourself two hours to really think about this before you got that meeting? Like, yeah. How, how do you cope with that as a freelancer? Um, I'd like to say both not very well and very well. Um, I've, I don't know, I find, I find designing sort of all in, in like, all in, in encompassing. All yeah. in, con- yeah. Um, so I think whenever I'm doing a show, if I'm walking about the place, I can tell you for sure that I'll find something that will inspire me that I can link back to that show. Mm. Um, so I'm constantly thinking about it. And in my head, that means that I'm constantly working. And so if I'm, even if I'm waitressing, for example, I might see that um, one of our customers is wearing an item that would be perfect for a character that's in the show that I'm designing currently. Or I might rush, deliver the tea and cake and then rush back and go, I've just had an idea and then jot it down on the, um, on the order pad and then stuff it in my pocket and continue on with my job. Um, and I think I think that's maybe not the healthiest way of doing things, but <laughs> it definitely means that I'm I'm always working and I'm not losing time by doing my other jobs. Or um, you know, if I need to chill, I'll often find something that's related to the job that I'm working on currently. Um yeah, so that's I think that's the way that I'm always keeping my mind on it. And then Recently, I've taken up bullet journaling, which is... What's that? I know, it's magical. <laughs> it's, it's, I wouldn't suggest 
looking it up because most people who do it, they do it in a very beautiful way. And I like to think that mine will be beautiful one day. Um, so if I have days off, I can like spend time, you know, drawing pretty pictures in it. But mainly it's a way of um, keeping a diary, but but in a very um, specific way to, to you. So my way, I have um, at the beginning, I have a, a year kind of at a glance so I can see every day and if if like where there are blocks of rehearsals and that's when I know that I've got to book time off my ushering and waitressing job or it's time when I know that I can't go to Dublin with my friends or something you know um and then from that I'll have um at the beginning of a month I have a month at a glance so I can see roughly on each day where I'm going to be at what time and then I have a week. It's really anal. <laughs> it sounds like a sort of the, the Marie Kondo of the mind. Yes, uh, yeah, it's completely that. And it, 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 it's, um, you've got to give yourself time to do it. And it doesn't have to be beautiful by any means. It's just got to work with you. Um, but it does mean that you're not constantly making lists in your head and then forgetting. Um, and I think also we, we fall into that gap of um, making a list and then maybe ticking off a few, but always adding to that list. And that sucks. So I think it's a way of giving yourself, um, like at the beginning of a month, I'll say, well, you know, I've got this deadline or I can look two months in advance and say, this is when the white card model is in. And so actually I've got to be working on it now for it to not be a rush at the end. So I can like set myself goals for the month and then I can set my goals, myself goals for the week. And then I can set myself goals for the days. But generally, they all coincide. So I'm not giving myself, you know, unnecessary tasks to do. And I, I, I mean, I've only done it for this year. And this year has been pants for, for work. So <laughs> I can say at the beginning of, of the year, it really helped. Um, but I don't know whether, whether I would continue doing it throughout the year. Because yeah, it gives your brain some other space to do the better things with itself rather than worry or add lists to lists. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. And I, you know, I do things where if I went to a final meeting, I'd kind of put a page in my journal about doing that final meeting, maybe put a few photos from the model box that I'd presented and then said, look, this is what I've learned from the final meeting um, about this project. But also, um, this is what I've learned about my own process and maybe you know, skills that I need to work on in the future. Um, yeah, it's really nice. It's it's like um, you, you've got to be really kind to yourself and say, I'm not very confident with woodwork and, and know that that isn't you ripping into yourself about not being good with woodwork. But yeah, I, you know, I think absolutely. You know, it's like not admitting your constantly admitting your defeats, but also recognizing your victories. And uh, you know, I think this idea that every, I mean, I have this idea, you know, that every has this amazing process where they sit, you know, in white rooms with you know beautiful tables with a breeze blowing in as they sort of consider, you know, how they're going to make this and do this. But I, I do think the chaos is probably part of it for all of us. Oh, yeah, about, completely. About how yeah. we create. Um, and this utopian ideal probably doesn't exist and we should maybe stop thinking about it that way. But I'm quite interested in that bullet point, yeah. journaling. I might have a go at that. Um, have you got any advice to anybody that might be listening to this that, that is sort of 
tinkering on the edge of their brain about maybe becoming a sonographer. And I know that sonographer set designers do more than just build sets. They costume design, they do all manner of different things. Yeah. And what advice would you give people that might be considering that as an avenue to explore? I, I'd say training in some shape or form is integral, um, whether that's like a year foundation course or three years or, um, you know, or a few weeks. I, I think definitely getting some lessons on it is um, really important because I think you, you just learn. I mean, as I said I learned so much from my stage manager friends that I didn't in my normal classes. Um, and I also now have, I have um, a production manager friend, Simon Jackson, who works in London now. And I'll always message him saying, um, can you help me out? <laughs> I need to make a block for this person to stand on. How might I do it? Um, and, and in turn, he might message me. He doesn't ever really do it, but he might message me. <laughs> and say can you have a look at this and um and it I think through doing that I've I've learned an awful lot and um you know at uni I learned how to make model boxes and I think that's maybe a dying trade but I think it's important it, it enables you to see um designs in perspective um and sort of get an outsider's look on what designs might be yeah, I think I think training in some shape or form, but it doesn't need to be three years. It can be, you know, a week-long thing. Um, just to hone the skills of being able to look at the world in a in a specific way. Um and then other things. I right at the beginning I got three books and they're um from SBTD, the Society of British Theatre Designers. I think they're all from there, but they're all um, like yearly catalogues of different designers um, based in the UK. And you can sort of look through them and some of them have uh, writing from the designer about their process or um, what their style is. Um, but you get a sense of um, what's possible in the theatre and also... Um, maybe like how to draw from your own style to create things. Um, yeah. And do you know what the name of those, those three books were? Um, no, but I can, I can get them What we'll do is we'll add you. them to the end on the resources. Yeah. So when people listen to the can through to sort of see what you're talking about, see if that yeah. might help, you know. And also interested for the people that want to sort of dive into that as a sort of design idea. Um, what have you been up to? For the last 25 weeks, Anne Robinson. Can you believe it's 25, 25 weeks? weeks? I think so. I mean, that's what I'm thinking it is. I mean, I'm maybe I'm wrong, but I think it is about 25 weeks. It's definitely in the sort of like low to middle 20s. Ah, oh, that's a bit painful. Because you've been working on a couple of things. You're trying to set up a creative directory, aren't you? Which I think is fascinating, the website. Yes. And you've also worked on um, Scene Change. Um, scene Change, with... yeah. Do you want to talk us through that a bit? Through both of what? those? Um, so Scene Change is um, a community of designers that was set up in um, at the beginning of the COVID crisis um, because, I mean, like most theatre professionals, we were seeing our jobs being cancelled and, um, and, you know, no longer existing. Um, the, the, one of the issues for designers is that they're not being on... 
by and large, they're not being hired at the moment. There isn't an awful lot of money in theatre anymore. And um, not that there ever was, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but there isn't, there is even less now. And I think sometimes people see designers as collateral damage. Like actually designers don't really, aren't really needed, which, you know, um, I can name you several productions that haven't used a designer and the design has been brilliant. Um, but I can also name you several productions where actually having a designer would have really helped their um, final outcome. Um, so I think there's arguments for both sides. As a designer myself, I say hire them, find the money and hire them um, because nothing bad will come out of it. Um, and the thing that I was um, taking part in was taping up theatres. So it was um, kind of inspired by seeing hazard tape, black and yellow hazard tape all over National Theatre. And they said that this was really sad, seeing that the theatres were locked up and having all of these like actually really quite harsh um, colours put in front of a theatre. And so a group of designers got together and um, designed a hazard tape that said scene change, missing live theatre, and then sent it all around the country. We recycled it as well. So I'm not sure where our tape ended up, but it ended up. So it went from Theatre Royal and Northern Stage to some other theatre in in the UK. I think actually up in Scotland, but I'm not sure. Um, And... um, we taped up the theatres so that it made people stop and look and some people took photos, some people posted them on Instagram and um, I think it, it kind of kept, the idea was to keep designers and theatre in people's minds. Um, that's now gone into, so someone's designed a poster and the poster's gone around the country as well. Um, and then have they got something else? I'm not sure. Their, their Twitter's amazing. It's filled with loads of um, different articles and blog posts that they've got different designers to write. Um, And then they also hold weekly Zoom sessions where they discuss different matters to do with design. Um, So like designers and directors relationship or the lighting designer and designers relationship. Um, yes, yeah, I think it's yeah, it's really exciting. And what's what's that what's that Twitter name? Is it at Scene Change or is it? Yeah, it's at Scene Change. Well, again, we'll add that as well because I think that's also fascinating. That if that a resource out there where people can sort of, I don't know, be together, learn together, you know, have a conversation about you know different ideas. Yeah, that, it's and, amazing. And and if you're if you're not a designer as well, I'd suggest coming along and and just watching and listening and reading because um, it is a kind of hidden world and. Um, uh, I think the more we learn about each other's little mm. careers, the yep, the yep. more respect we have for each other. So you know, and and, and the easier we work together, and, and the better the product at the end of it. Yeah. Um, and what what about your creative directory? I know I've, I've just titled that myself. I really that's the right name for it. But well, it is. It is. I mean, it's a bit. I feel like I've bitten off more than I can chew at the moment. It's amazing, but... though. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah. No. Basically, it came out of. Um, uh, frustration that um, not many people knew who was around in the northeast uh, freelancer wise, especially designers. So doing scene change, actually, I met Imogen Chloe and um, Alison. She designs, yeah, Alison Ashton, um, and I finally met Eileen Kelly. I mean, we'd kind of met in passing, 
Um, but we'd never really met each other and and some of us didn't even know each other existed, which is mad because we're all doing the same job. We're all in the Northeast. And contrary to belief, we actually like having other stage designers around. Um, and and I think um I think that's mad. I think especially given how small Newcastle is, especially, that that we didn't know that we all existed. Um and I think if that there is a slight issue that because people don't know we exist, we're then not being hired by the local companies and um, the local companies are bringing people from London, which is great and it's exciting, but actually we need to be able to support. Um, no, it is. I think I think there's an importance in supporting our local freelancers. Yeah, me too. And there's, there's also an importance in bringing people up. I mean, how else are we going to show them that there's more to Newcastle than you know, clubbing, um, that that actually, you know, there's an incredible theatre scene, but we're not showing people because we're just, we're not, when it, we're at risk of it dying because we're not supporting the freelancers who exist here at the moment. And so it came out of that and it came out of um, a few conversations on the Northeast social culture mass Zoom thing that you set up with Curious Monkey and Unfolding Theatre and the likes. Um, where we were saying, you know, lots of people were saying, if we wanted to collaborate on a project, we're not entirely sure how we'd go about getting those collaborators and finding out who might be interested in those projects. So um, in response, <laughs> I set up this, this website and it's not, um, it's not live at the moment. There are a few um, sort of kinks in the way that I need to iron out. But it's got it's got line designers. It's got all sorts of, hasn't it? I mean, when you showed me like the the first version of it, like way back early lockdown. Yeah. I mean, then it looked it already looked great, and so like you're trying to like essentially get this. Yeah. So this so place it's, where people can find each other. Yeah. So it's called Northeast Theatre Creative Network, and it's got um, uh, theatre practitioners who are freelance and who are backstage, who it's sort of like a spotlight, but for the freelancers in the Northeast. Um, so people who wouldn't, you know, necessarily have agents who will be able to help find them jobs. And so it's got designers, lighting designers, scenic construction, pu- puppet makers. It's got writers. Um, yeah, all sorts. It's got a newcomers section um, and then a members page. But um and it's, it's all with the goal of you have a profile and on that profile, you'll have a tiny, tiny bit of not really bio, but more a list of projects that you've worked on. Um, and then a few links, like links to your socials. If you if you use your socials, it'll have um, a section for your CV if you have a CV. Um, it has if you're a sound designer, it's got sections where you can put some sound bites of your work Um Similarly with writers, if you want to put sound bites of your work on as well, um, you can put videos on there. Um, yeah, it's a space where you won't be able to post anything, but you'll be able to find individual people and and email them um, and say, hey, I'm doing this. Weird. So, so when, when when's that going to go live? <laughs> it's a good question. <laughs> it's uh, it's a good question. At the moment, I need to have conversations with people because um, I put it out into the the Facebook sphere um, and asked if people were interested in it. And I got a lot of actors coming back and saying that they are really keen to have 
to be on it. And I hadn't shown them that they weren't on it. Um, and that's well, that. now they know. I know. <laughs> um, but I, I wonder actually, because of the amount of people who've got back to, to me about that, I wonder whether actually it should be bigger than than what it is. But that's that's I know. That's oh my, my that's my that's bit. That's gonna where be I'm an like, absolute monster. You're gonna have to you're gonna have to just stop everything and do that. I know. I know. I think it's absolutely brilliant, and it's about time it happened. And you know, I think looking at what you've what you'd achieved, you know, way back in week six. I mean, I can't wait for it to go live and see what happens to it. Um, Thanks very much. I've got one more question for you, Anne Robinson, and it's yes. the sort of um, it's the sort of end of podcast question. Okay. Um, and looking for your recommendations for either something you've watched, you've read, you've played, or you listened to over the last 25 weeks, that's brought you some um, small or large amount of joy? Small or large amount of joy. I've been watching absolute trash recently. Great. That's the best (laughs) thing to do. (laughs) Um, I've not been reading much and I haven't been watching any of the live theatre stuff um, because I'm a rebel. Um, Yeah. Uh, I really like the podcast You're Dead to Me which is um, a history podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it's set up and run by one of the historians who works on horrible histories, but it's for adults. Um, it's great. Um, what else? I'm a bit of a geek. I sort of go into, like, history rabbit holes. I downloaded... Um, downloaded. I signed up to Disney Plus because um, Disney was sort of unofficially banned in my household when I was growing up um <laughs> and so I um I signed up to it because I'm a big girl and I can sign up to things on my own um oh but, my god have you seen that their design stuff their imaginarium that the, 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 no the, so that's on my list to watch and so is the rest amazing. of the Disney stuff that I've missed out on as a child but instead I watched National Geographic about Tutankhamun's tomb <laughs> Great. But there's so many brilliant things on there about design. The Pixar stuff, the Imagineers. Like, honestly, there's like 12 to 13 hours of something called the Imagineers, which are fascinating about design. And also, as on a history thing, um, I've just recently downloaded <laughs> um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's uh, Talking to Strangers, which is like a really brilliant perspective on history and how we... Anyway, you've got to listen to it. It's great. Well, thank you, Anna Robinson. That was an absolutely wonderful hour uh, to listen to your chat. Um, Thank you. Take care and goodbye. See you soon, I hope. Our thanks to Anna for taking the time to talk. I'm fascinated by design and designers. They truly inspire me. After all, sometimes the set is the best bit. We'd also like to thank all of the artists, collaborators and creatives mentioned in this podcast. Thank you to the ever soundless one that is producer Johnny, aka Johnny Rothwell, for editing the podcast, to Mark Melville for soundtracking and to Chris Clayton Scott for doing all the work to get it to you. Finally, thank you for taking the time to listen. We really appreciate it. Please do take a look at the show notes with links to all the resources and websites that we talked about. And also, if you want to subscribe or leave us some thoughts, you know what to do. Thanks again.